Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. Not a great series for your Colorado Rockies, losing two of the three games against the St. Louis Cardinals, getting a couple of daggers in the heart from former Colorado Rocky Nolan Arenado. Doesn't it always seem to work out that way? And falling to 5-8 and eight on the season. The silver linings, that's still not an incredibly terrible record, all things considered, and they very much could have swept this series, if not for a few key mistakes. Uh, that said, I do think it was indicative of the type of thing we're likely to see happen throughout the season. You know, the Rockies, as I've often said, they've got a lot of good players on this team that can make games competitive. It's just the lack of depth, whether it be in the lineup, in the rotation, in the bullpen, you know, whenever you're getting to those parts of the team, the other teams are just going to be able to hold up better. They're less likely to make the key defensive mistake. They're less likely to make the key bad pitch, so on and so forth. But that said, there were some ups, there were some downs, and that's what we do here when a series is completed. So let me give you your three ups and your three downs for this Rocky set against St. Louis before they begin with Seattle. Let's begin with the up here. Kyle Freeland and Armand Marquez continue to pitch very, very well. Uh, now, Freeland didn't pitch in this series, but it is worth noting that he's got a sub-1 ERA at this point on the season. But Marquez pitched well in his game, obviously only had to come out because of the Injury thing, which I'll talk about, obviously, when we get to the downs. But sporting a, a 441 ERA on the season, which is a positive ERA plus, and a five innings pitched, two earned run performance against this Cardinals team, and really seemed like he, he could have gone another couple of innings and really had a very solid outing for himself. Obviously, not the way you wanted to see it end, but he continues to be pretty to very good. And probably the most important uh, sign here in Marquez's performance so far this season are the peripherals. He's been very good from a strikeout to walk standpoint. Uh, he's only walked two batters this season. Only two in 16.1 innings pitched, he struck out 13. Uh, that is a ratio that will play. So, yeah, like I said, the 119 ERA plus, don't think I gave you specifics on that. He's been pretty good, not uh, elite elite. Obviously, you don't want to see the, the thing that happened, and, and I'll dive into that in just a minute. But so far, much better out of Marquez than what we saw last season. Much, much better. I mean, just on a pitch-to-pitch uh, basis, you know, and, and I said this last year, and I think it's worth repeating now because I, I don't think it's going to be out that long and, and getting back into this conversation of the best version of Marquez. And there's been a lot of conversation about his pitch selection. Is he pitching down in the zone too often? Is he pitching too predictably? Uh, there's a lot of different things that are interesting. That conversation has to happen, but it has to happen after Marquez has his command back. 
that stuff only matters if you're hitting your spots, right? What pitch you're intending to throw, what pitch, you know, in your head or what you and the catcher have called and you're trying to execute, that only matters if that's then what you end up throwing. And far too often last season, what was hurting Marquez was not that he was throwing a pitch right to a spot where a guy was predicting it. That that did get him a little bit. That gets everybody, every pitcher from time to time. But in general, Marquez just was not hitting his spots the way he needed to. It's one of the reasons why he changed his grip, why he's been talking so much about staying behind the baseball, uh, a, whole, a phrase that they use, and he explained what that means. But essentially, getting too much run on his pitches where they were backing up over the heart of the plate, whether that's the slider or the curve that he throws, backing up and hanging, as they call it, into the middle of the plate. Or a lot of times his fastball would move too much arm side when he's trying to keep it outside of the right-handed hitters. It's running back over the middle of the plate as opposed to just clipping the edge or staying just outside, which is a much more difficult pitch to hit. So from that standpoint, in the last couple of games, he's done a much, much better job of hitting the target, of being able to execute his pitches with some velocity, with some late movement, and actually hitting the target. And so if when he comes back, that's still the case, then we can start diving deeper and deeper into, all right, is he throwing the right pitches in the right sequences? Are we going to see a return to dominant Marquez where he can be striking out close to double-digit guys a game and really having, you know, some of these where he's flirting with the no-hitter? And, you know, you remember good Marquez. But uh, still... Let's start then with the first down. Uh, let's stay on topic and go with the Marquez forearm tightness. Now, I have this at the number one down mostly just to stay on topic here because I'm not freaking out about this yet. Everything I've heard from the team that this is something he's experienced before, I've heard from him, heard from uh, Doogie, you know, Bud Black. Everybody's talked about it, this is a thing he's experienced before, some forearm t- tightness. They're being precautious, you know, so... I can't go off of anything other than that. I don't even try to pretend to play a doctor on TV or on podcasts, and I can't really do anything more with it than that. Uh, What I do have it on here for, though, the next part of the conversation that is, of course, a down, is that he's going to have to miss a start at the very least, right? They they put him on the IL, and uh, I suspect that it'll be Noah Davis who gets this start, and that's fine. Uh, again, I I sort of hate it when my analysis of a guy is like this. I've said it before about Ryan Feltner. And it, it's that I have neither incredibly strong nor incredibly negative feelings about the player, right? And I just need to see more. There's nothing in the statistical profile. There's nothing in what I've seen. There's nothing in the scouting reports that suggests... This is a guy who's about to pop and become, uh, you know, a big league regular. But of course, that happens. It happens kind of often. And a lot of times that's what guys who are working for teams are, are paid to do and find out, right? I know Noah Davis is a guy that the Rockies have liked uh, a lot. Uh, he's got some big league experience, right? We saw him sporadically uh, throughout the year last year. Nothing that jumps at you uh, off the page from a, a pitch mix standpoint. It's just... You know, fastball, curveball, slider, changeup, but comes in, 
you know, tries to, to get his outs. It's there. It's kind of interesting, right? Like this is the one guy. And so, so let me actually talk about who they're not bringing up and why, I guess, like the prospects as it were. And, and some people might consider Noah Davis to be one of the top prospects. But when I say the prospects, I mean, Ryan Rollis and Peter Lambert and Carl Kaufman are not ready. And it's not fair to rush them. Right. And it's not fair to, to ask them to, to do something they're not ready for. And so Davis is at least a guy who's got a little bit of experience and you can throw him out there and it's not great, not a big deal. You're going to be okay. And if it goes well, then maybe he can pitch himself into a role, probably in the bullpen for a little while, especially once. And I think what the ultimate you know, solution to the Jose Urania problem is going to be is a return of Antonio Sensatella which I'm hearing is getting closer and closer. And they're very excited about his progress and uh, he's getting out there and pitching rehab starts and stuff like that. So yeah, it's not great to, to have an injury to Marquez right now, especially because again, if you're evaluating for the future, which I think most of us here are doing right, this is one of the biggest decisions the Rockies have on their plate for 24 and forward is do they re-sign, right? Because they've got an option on Marquez for next season if he's good enough to roll it back for one more year. Or if he's great, do they offer him a, a full extension along with Freeland, who's got his money and is pitching well. He's got his contract and say, okay, you are our guys. We're good. We need to rebuild the rest of this around you clearly, but but at the very least, we've got the rock of it, that the top two, even if they don't remain the top two, even if you go out and get somebody else who ends up being your number one, you're at the very least, those are the guys you can build around in your rotation. And so, you know, you lose your chance to do that evaluation when he's on the IL. But again, I'm, I'm really hoping that it's going to be a, a one start miss type situation. And so we'll see what happens from here. Again, not a doctor it can only, uh, hope and pray on those types of things, right? Okay. Let's do uh, another down, actually, because I was really just talking about this, and we'll keep it in the pitching, and then we can get to the other stuff. And that is basically everybody else who's on the negative side of either the rotation or the bullpen, right? The Rockies have basically got it split right now so that Freeland and Marquez in the rotation have been very good. And then the bottom three guys have been bad to very, very bad, right? Gomber, Urania, and Feltner. The same thing has held true in the bullpen, where your back end guys have all been pretty to very good. Justin Lawrence has been excellent. Brad Hand and Brent Suter have been fantastic. Pierce Johnson's got an ugly, like, seven-something ERA right now, but he's had a very interesting season where in the games he's pitched where the Rockies are already down, he's been bad, and he's given up some runs. He's got knocked around a little bit, and it happened again in this set against St. Louis. But when he's had his save opportunities, he's three for three, and I'd have to double-check, but I don't think he's allowed any runs in those save opportunities either. They haven't been, like... You know, those kind of dusty ones where he's walking a couple of guys and maybe giving up a run, but then still getting the save because the Rockies were up to like, no, his saves have been fantastic. So it's kind of interesting that when the team has already been in a position to lose, 
he's, yeah, hurt the comeback attempt, but certainly not cost them the game because they were already losing, right? And when they've needed him the most, he's been absolutely fantastic. So more or less, you've got to be happy with the plus side of the pen, but then the minus side of the pen has been truly and epically awful. Uh, Ty Block and Connor Siebold, you know, I have said before, at the very least, they are giving you the length, and that's what you expect out of your long relief guys. It's also a bit unfortunate that here in the early going, they've had to pitch so much uh, because, you know, Feltner and Arrani have had trouble getting length. And then here with, you know, Marquez having to leave the game with the forearm. And, you know, it, it would just be nice to have a clean outing out of one of them. That That's kind of the frustrating thing right now, right? You're like, okay, sure, you're the long reliever. If you go three innings and you end up giving up a run or two in the middle of the game, that should almost count for keeping them in it, but it just feels like they're going three, giving up three. So you, you know you you don't really feel like you're you're holding serve there at that point. And then uh, maybe the most disappointing one uh, among all of them has been the struggles of Denelson Lament. Uh, you know I hope he has the opportunity to iron it out. Of course, it's still very early. He does have great stuff, but he's just back to that Marquez conversation about you know hitting his spots he's just not hitting his spots you have to have some type of command and control of the strike zone uh and he doesn't right now (laughs) so so that has been uh basically the reason why they're five and eight right there as i just laid it out right when their top guys start the game and they get just enough offense uh, then they can hand it over to justin lawrence Pierce Johnson, Brent Suter, a little bit of Brad Hand. He hasn't pitched a ton. Then they're fine in these other games. Oh, and the the name I left out from the, the guys who really struggled, obviously, has been Jake Bird, who I, again, am a bit perplexed. I've, I've gone back and forth on this. I went from perplexed to how they were using him to, no, I guess this makes sense if you're trying to throw him in the fire and you think that Jake Bird could be a future setup or closer guy. And you're <laughs> setup or closer guy. That's the official title. And, you know... Okay, I, I understand some of that. But then he really, really struggled those first couple of times out. And, and then Buddy put him back in there again in another... Like, they were down, but it was a close game. And then Jake Bird came in, and it, and it wasn't a close game anymore. So he's really um, been probably the guy that struggled the most out of the bullpen and been the most costly. I do suspect he'll be sent back to AAA once uh, Daniel Bard returns and... Don't forget that Tyler Kinley is still out there. I talked to Tyler a little bit the other day, and and he's uh, potentially going to return. So I still think they've got the makings of a very, very good bullpen here. Uh, but the certainly the when you've got four guys out there in Lamette, Bird, Block, and Seabold who are giving up runs pretty much every time out, uh, just like with the starters, that's just very, very difficult to win those games. And that's how you end up at five and eight. All right, let's talk about some positives. How about Elahris Montero? I've been meaning to talk about him a little bit more. It seems like he always just misses being in the ups because he hasn't had too many like huge games yet. He's just been very consistently good. In fact, arguably, he's been the Rockies' most consistently good hitter. Now, Elias Diaz has the best raw numbers. He has a little bit of the benefit. I say the benefit of getting days off here and there. I mean, he's a catcher, so he has to get them because it destroys your knees and stuff. But 
In the 10 games that Elauris Montero has played, 37 plate appearances, he's batting 333, on basing 351, and slugging 500. He's only hit the one home run and only four ribbies on the year, also only three doubles. So he really hasn't gotten the power stroke going. 500 slugging is all right. Uh, obviously, uh, it, it can be pretty good depending on who you are. Montero's a guy you're hoping to see a, a little more thump out of that bat, right? That's a part of, of the hopeful projection on this guy is that he could be, you know, a 20 plus home run a year type of guy and, and pretty big doubles numbers. He had, he had big doubles numbers in the minors and has power to all fields and at Coors that should really, really play. So an OPS plus of 115, about 15% better than league average. But it really, for me, has been the consistency. There's only two games he started this season where he hasn't gotten a hit. So he's just out there doing the thing. As I, I've got to remember now, did he exhaust his rookie eligibility a year ago? I'm almost certain he did. So he's not really a rookie. But for all intents and purposes, he is, right? This is his first year starting regularly. Last year, he was coming up sporadically, coming off the bench for the most part. He really didn't get regular plate appearances at the big league level until the Rockies were well out of it late in the season. And even then, he started getting kind of stuck behind guys like Tolia, uh, who, who were trying to get their plate appearances, who hadn't been coming up earlier in the season. And so it was a very uneven year for Montero last year. And seeing him respond by coming out, winning the Abby Greer Award for best player in spring training for the Colorado Rockies, which honestly, there have been times in the past that's been a little bit of a kiss of death. Like Ryan McMahon won it a couple of times. It was absolutely phenomenal in spring training and then just got off to really, really tough starts uh, for a couple of seasons there. But Montero, you know, to just go into the regular season solid, right? Not so hot, you go, ah, this is going to run out. You know, he's catching lightning in a bottle and it's going to end, you know, none of that. And and certainly not in, in a slump. Um, and I want to talk about Tovar probably on a future episode because it doesn't really fit into these ups or downs. But we need to have a, in fact, it might even just be its own podcast. Uh, we need to have a very nuanced conversation about the interesting year that Ezekiel Tovar is having. Where on paper, it looks like he's been absolutely dreadful, but I don't think that he has been. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, but at least with Montero, what you're getting are some results, right? Some pretty consistent results. And you look up at the end of every game, it seems like he's gone one for three, uh, though it would be nice to see him start getting a little more lift on the ball, uh, hitting some of those line drives into the gap, a couple of them over the wall, but it's hard to complain about a guy hitting 333 through his first 10 games as a regular in major league baseball. That's pretty awesome stuff. Okay, I'm going to do the last down and then the last up. Let's talk about the bad defense in this series. Now, this was a bit strange because Ryan McMahon and CJ Crone both made key defensive errors that arguably cost the Rockies the sweep. I mean, it, it, certainly Ryan McMahon committed an error that would have ended the inning and the Rockies would have still been up and... In that inning, the Cards went on to score a bunch of runs, uh, tie the ball game, would go on to win it. And then in the C.J. Crone one in the next game, the game was tied. Crone makes the error, and on the very next pitch, basically the only bad pitch that Justin Lawrence has thrown all season, 
uh, Nolan Gorman takes him deep for a two-run home run that put the Cardinals on top for good, right? And so, you know, it, it's hard to say that the Crone, that the Rockies necessarily win that game. And the Crone won, the McMahon won, maybe. You know, if that inning doesn't happen, it's a little easier to say uh, from a logical standpoint. But it's also a bit strange because both of those guys are good defenders. There was also an error in uh, the first game, I think. I, I'd have to go back and look at it. But Montero has been a little bit rough defensively to, to push back slightly on my talk about how consistently good he's been. That's all at the plate. He hasn't been terrible defensively, but it does feel like the handful of difficult opportunities he's had have proven to be difficult for him. Uh, and, you know, there, there have been some of those where, yeah, it's it ended up leading to a big inning or an inning where several runs are scored. And so, I have it as the last down, not because it wasn't costly. Again, it was it was probably the most costly thing to the Rockies in this series, which was strange to see, like I said, especially out of McMahon and Crone, and I don't expect it to continue. And that's, that's the reason why I have it down at the bottom here, is that I don't expect defense to be a big problem for the Rockies. Now, I kept saying that last year, and... If those of you that remember that, that watched closely last year, the the 12 of you that were really closely paying attention to Rockies baseball last season, uh, they had a very strange, uncharacteristically bad start defensively, including some some plays from McMahon uh, when he was at third last year and, and some plays from Brendan Rodgers who would go on to win the gold glove, but he made some key defensive errors. There were just a lot of weird ones, a lot of in-between uh, bad defensive plays from a team that ended up being a well above average defensive team by the end of the season. And so you always hate it when stuff like that costs you a game. It's it's kind of like special teams in football. It's sort of feel like feeling like you played them even offense and defense, or maybe you even played them and you were up a field goal or something, but then they run the kick off back on you and score the last minute touchdown and you lose like that's how I always feel when defensive errors end up costing the game because it's so rarely a part of what ends up deciding outcomes usually it's how you pitch how you hit right but in those moments they can be incredibly costly they can be very important and so yeah got them on those ones really unfortunate because they could have stole the series they could have swept them which would have been fun and nice they could have avoided a lot of the narratives coming out about nolan arenado and stuff Uh, but you know at this point it's just hey you lost a set to the better team it is what it is too bad could have stolen it maybe some things to build on there though if you tighten it up could have really embarrassed those guys a little bit uh by taking all three games so that's maybe something to hang your hat on. And the last thing I've got for you as an up, and this really is a a pretty minor minimal up, but the offense looked better in this series, much more competitive at bats. And, and, you know, as I say, well, yeah, they were at Coors. Well, they looked better in the set against the Cardinals against much better pitching than they did against the Washington nationals and very, very bad pitching. Right. You know, getting a, a little bit after Flaherty, really making him work for it, getting him out of the game. Uh, Profar going first pitch and getting him was pretty great to see him settling in a little bit. 
Ryan McMahon with three home runs on the season. Charlie Blackman hitting 341. Chris Bryant hitting well, despite the fact that he's still looking for his first home run both of the season and at Coors Field. You know, you got to figure he's going to get that eventually, but it, it's kind of become comical at this point. Uh, but the power is going to come with Chris Bryant. As long as he's healthy, I'm not concerned about that. The offense looked a lot better in terms of their approach in the last three games. You got to hope that they can take that with them now on the road. Uh, be patient. Stop swinging at the first pitch so much. Wait around for the walk or the mistake pitch. I know not everyone loves that kind of baseball, and you can try to play a little more station to station when you've got those opportunities. But the Rockies have some guys that have a bit of thump in their lineup that also have a bit of swing and miss in their lineup, and they can't afford to be as aggressive as they have been. And they they need to be able to figure out a way to play a little bit better team offense. So I did think that the at-bats across the board were a lot better in the Cardinals series. And hopefully that power surge, because I think there's more power. Like I think we're going to see finally a big power year out of Ryan McMahon. We know it comes and goes with C.J. Crone can be very, very streaky. He was bad in this series. Some of those swings were just awful, but we know it'll come back. It, it, he just does this for some reason, somehow, some way. Like I was saying about Bryant, I, I'd be beyond flabbergasted if he played 100-plus games this year and hit less than 15 home runs. You know, uh, 20 should be more or less the over-under for him. And so there's got to be some power coming uh, but it's got to start with the approaches at the plate. So that's what I've got for you for ups and downs from that series and uh, looking forward to this set in Seattle. I always like watching the Mariners play. They've long been my favorite American League team. I mean, I always kind of root for the Mariners and the Royals, you know, the American League versions of the Rockies, essentially. <laughs> so good on them uh, for really putting together a fantastic, young, exciting team out there. And good on them for offering, like, smart, considered contracts where, you know, guys are going to get paid a, a baseline, decent chunk of change, and then... Uh, you really put the incentives in there that if you end up being this phenomenal player, uh, you know, Julio Rodriguez, we're not just going to sit here on it and say, oh, we've got one of the best steals in, in baseball because he's a superstar all-star and we're only going to pay him, you know, $8 million a year because he's still on his rookie deal in arbitration or whatever. You know, what they've decided to do is say, hey, if you end up reaching those heights, we will pay you in accordance with that. And I think it's fantastic. It almost makes too much sense, right? It would incentivize him to earn that money that he knows is right there. He knows exactly how much money is on the table for him to go out and earn. And like I said, just from an economic standpoint, I've always been frustrated by teams like the Rays who've made it somehow really awesome to underpay your players and be like, isn't it great how every single guy on our team is worth more than he's making? Like, I don't know. That seems kind of not cool. I don't know. Just on a human level. So I love that the Mariners have decided like, Hey, no, like we are more than happy if you become a superstar to pay you superstar money, but only if you become that superstar, which is fair. Absolutely fair. Love it. And I just love the way they're running their organization out there right now so uh, i'll be watching these games staying up late more west coast man these eight o'clock start times kind of 
drive me nuts, but that's all right. I'm becoming an old man. I can hear it right now. It's starting so late. Uh, but I appreciate you all hanging out with me, uh, continuing to ask questions on the AMAs. I hope you're subscribed to the Mile High Sports YouTube channel, watching everything we've got for you on there. Please, please, please do that. I'm going to be creating more content with our guys. Of course, video uh, team, <laughs> Michael, is... Uh, out there working real hard on abs and nuggets stuff and that makes a lot of sense but there will be a lot of rockies content for you on the youtube page so make sure you're subscribed to mile high sports on youtube and twitter and all of that good stuff instagram and you know social medias uh thank you for continuing to be absolutely awesome out there you know that i will continue to be absolutely drew creaseman in here and until next time i will see you at the ball